Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk. Now, the first hour, terrible. They were terrible. They didn't understand. They didn't. I, I was talking about a, a delicious, delicious candy bar that was made in the 70s, late 70s, all the way till 1981. I checked to see when it discontinued. 1981. Matter of fact, you can still buy this candy on, on, uh, on different uh, websites. So keep in mind the candy was produced in 81. You can still buy unpackaged bars if you so desire. It was kind of like a star crunch, chocolatey goodness. It was named after a, a hero uh, of the Major League Baseball uh, in the in 1970s and early 80s. His name was Reggie Jackson. Now, when I was given all the details except for the name, and I asked everyone, I said, what was the name of the candy bar? Everyone said, Babe Ruth, Baby Ruth. And I was like, no, no, because that candy bar is still around, obviously. But there was in the, in the late 70s and the early 80s, there was a bar called the Reggie Bar. And it was a wonderful candy bar. And it was a candy bar I very rarely got to have because we learned at the Turner household, the Reggie Bar was never on sale at Kmart. So therefore, it was the bar consigned to the rich folk. The Reggie Bar was the candy bar for rich folk. For the Turners, we got whatever candy bar Kmart would sell, six for a dollar, once a month. They would have a sale on their candy. And that was the candy at our home. So it was the Hershey Bar. It was the Kit Kat. It was other types of bars. I can't even remember. They were just terrible bars with coconut in them and things like that. Those were the candy bars that were, that were assigned to us. But the one candy bar I truly wanted, the Reggie bar, never ever was in, on sale at Kmart, so therefore we never had it. Well, there was a grocery store close to our home, a little convenience mart that you could go and get meat, you could get milk and cheese and just the staples, and we could walk there from our home. And uh, we would often go there as a little kid. I remember walking with my mom to go to the store and pick up things that we needed throughout the day, throughout the week. And, and so one time I decided I happened to see a pile of these Reggie bars. I was probably five years old at the time, five or six, somewhere in that area, era, and I, or that area of my life. And, and I saw a pile of Reggie bars and they were unwatched. And I thought, you know what? I deserve a Reggie bar and my mother will never allow me to have one. So I'm just going to take the bull by the horns and just get my own Reggie bar, right? Then buy it. I just took it. <laughs> I stole it, right? Now, I was not a bright criminal in those days uh, because I found myself eating the bar in front of my mother thinking she will never know. She would never think to ask how this five-year-old got a hold of a candy bar she did not hand me herself. So needless to say, I was shocked and flat-footed when she said, what did you get with that bar? Where'd you get that bar at, Tony? I hadn't thought through my story yet, you know, and I hadn't thought through the, you know, what would be, what would happen? How would I respond if I had, was peppered with questions? And so I collapsed pretty quickly. And I, I just said the first thing that came to my mind, which was, well, I, I, I got it at, at, at Cook's. I got, when we were there, I, I got it. And she said, well, you don't have any money. How did you buy it? How did you buy that bar? And I said, again, I wasn't prepared. So I the first, I was making up. I was, you know, shooting from the hip here, like I do much of life to this day. Even uh, I was shooting from the hip, and I said, "Well, I, 
I, I, they, they gave it to me. They gave me that bar because they just saw what a good kid I am. And they just felt like, the grocer just felt like I needed that bar. And of course, my mom saw through that real quickly and it took about 30 seconds for me to, for my lies to come collapsing in on them. And, and I confessed to her that I did indeed steal that bar and, and, you know, and that I was, I, I was wrong for doing that. And I remember she grabbed me by the arm to the point where my arm still aches today, I think, because of the intensity that she grabbed it by. And she said, we're going to go back to that store. You're going to take that, you're going to take that bar back, that half eaten bar back, and you're going to give it back to him. And you're going to, you're going to say you're sorry. And you're going to confess to what you did. And I remember in that process, she told me, uh, I, I said, well, what, what, what are they going to do? You know, because I, I, I was like, I'm not going to, what do you mean confess? I can't go and tell them uh, that I just stole from them. What, what are they going to do to me? And, and my mom said, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do to you because here's the reality. You're a thief right now and thieves go to jail. Thieves belong in jail. So if they want to, they could call the police and send you to jail. And I remember just that trip, that walk all the way to Cook's was the longest walk I'd ever taken in my life because I just knew I was going to spend the rest of my life in jail. I just knew that they were going to rip me from my parents and from my loving home, and I was going to spend the next 25 years of my life in a jail, you know. I was going to be, you know, breaking, making, making big stones into little stones, you know. I was, I was going to be living a hard life in hard time in San Quentin or some such place. And, and I remember having to see that, that, that grocer looked like he was 25 feet tall at that point, you know, when I was sharing what I had done and when I was learning the lesson of what a thief deserves and the shame a thief deserves. And, and also at that time when he forgave me, when he forgave me and absolved me of my sin, I remember the relief I felt at that point, I learned a lot of things those days, that day. I know that I learned a lot of things because, you know, I never had a problem stealing a candy bar ever again. I never had a problem from that day on as a, as a teenager, as a 10-year-old, as a teenager, as a young adult, uh, taking something that was not mine. I learned a very valuable thing that still is a part of my life, and that is the, the preciousness of private property, of how what you own uh, is not mine, and so therefore I need to treat it with respect, and I can't just take what you have, right? Because of that lesson that my mom gave me back when I was five years old, that, that discipline that she put into my life, right? And the reality is discipline, as we think of parenting, it's not a fun study. It's not a fun topic. It's not something that I confess that I was excited three or four weeks ago knowing that I would be talking about this today, that I wasn't sitting there going, oh, Joy, I get to, we get to talk about discipline techniques and discipline management with our children. Recognizing that it's not a fun study, I realize that it is keenly, keenly needed in our society because the reality is this is not something that we do to our children. Discipline is something that we do for our children. Zig Ziglar the noted, the popular sing, uh, singer, not singer, the popular speaker and, and, and bookseller uh, said this. He, he said, a child who has not been disciplined with love by his little world will be disciplined without love by the great big world. 
What a true statement there. Uh, if we don't teach discipline to our children, guess what? Someone will one day. It might be that first, that first boss. It might be a, 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 a mate, a spouse. It might be a coworker. It might be a neighbor. Someone will put discipline in our kids' lives, but I guarantee you this, they will not put it with the love and the kindness and the hope that we put it in to our children's lives. And so that's the warning for us. That, that we, need, we need to instill discipline into our children because it, it's for their benefit, not just for ours. Not just for ours, it's also for their benefit. Now, I, I also share this. If you're sitting here and maybe you're saying, well, hey, you know, my children have been raised already, Tony, so I can just press pause on this talk and you think about other things that I'm going to do today. Uh, no, that's not the case. Uh, if you're sitting here saying, I have no children in my home. We, I don't have children. I don't plan to have children anytime soon. This talk does not apply to me. No, not the case. Because the reality is these principles, in many ways, also apply to how we do business, how we manage people around us, how we deal with folks that are coworkers or people that maybe report to us. Uh, I, you could take this, these lessons and apply them many, many ways. So the first thing we, I want to do is talk about what is our goal for discipline? What's the goal that you should be aiming for when you discipline? Have you ever thought about that? Many times, I think many people have not thought about, well, what is it I want? What do I want out of this? Because truth be told, many of us, we discipline out of the fact of our emotions. If I am in a good mood, then my discipline is soft and easy. If I had a bad day at work today, then my discipline will be stern and forceful, Right? If I feel bad about myself, then I will discipline in such a way to make my kids feel bad about themselves. And you sit back and go, oh, Tony, that's a bleak picture you paint of parents. What do you think? Well, I go on the, the adage that we, we say this often in our church because it's a true statement, and that is hurt people have a way of hurting people, right? Hurt people hurt people. And so I find that when we live in a world full of hurt people, those hurt people will hurt other people, including their children, even if they don't consciously intend to do that. Many of us oftentimes will discipline out of the hurtness in our lives. And I share this and take just a moment to say to you, I realize in the, this room with this size of audience, with the people that are watching online, the hundreds of folks that connect to us throughout the week, uh, there are many of us, there are many of us who have been hurt by a father or a mother, by an by a aunt or an uncle, by a grandparent. We've experienced hurt, whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse or sexual abuse. We, we have been abused in profound ways. And for you, I say to you as your pastor, I am sorry. I'm sorry. I, I can't say I feel your hurt. Right? That's a political statement that politicians use. But I can say I empathize with you. And I hate, I hate that we live in a violent world where people hurt one another. I hate when children are, are abused by, by the people that are supposed to care for them. And I get that we go back 50 years in time we were children. We go back 60 years in time. We were children. We go back 20 years in time. We were children. And many of us have been profoundly hurt. And so I say to you, if you're in that boat, 
there are two things that you need to pay attention to. The first thing is this. It's very difficult for you to truly trust in the living God because something happens psychologically when you experience abuse from the people who love you, who are supposed to love you the most. When you experience that it's, and you, you can't trust them, then something's happened spiritually in your life where you look at the heavenly father and you go, if the heavenly father is supposed to be what my earthly father is, I couldn't trust my earthly father. How can I trust my heavenly father? And so you find that there's this, this wall, this separation between you and a loving God because of what was perpetrated upon you. Let me just say to you, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have those skill sets, but I would just implore you as your friend, as your pastor to do whatever it takes to push through that, to push through that so that you can experience a God who you can trust. So you experience a God who you can love with your whole heart and mind. And I would also say this, the second thing that you need to deal with and understand if that is you in your life, it is very easy for you to allow the cycle of hurt to continue with your children because hurt people hurt people. And, uh, and it's easy to do. One of the things, and Dana can tell you, she's here right now, that my father and I, we have a very unique relationship. My father and I, there, there are many things that I would say my dad and I would, we could say my dad is by no means a perfect man in any sense of the matter. But, uh, but one of the things that my dad did well was he, uh, he had an eighth grade education because his dad, when he told him, when he got to eighth grade, he said that men have to go to work. Men aren't meant to be educated. And he ripped him out of school and put him to work on the farm. My dad would not talk very much about his life uh, with his family, but my mom would tell me and my aunts and uncles would tell me about what kinds of things would happen. For whatever reason, my dad received most of the wrath from his alcoholic father, and I would hear stories of how he would be beaten with a shingle, uh, that that was the tool of choice, uh, that as my my grandfather lay drunk in a drunken stupor underneath a shade tree by the field. My dad was the one who had to put on the collar that was assigned to a horse or a mule. And then one of the other brothers or sisters would guide the plow. And my dad would be the mechanician to, to plow a field in the morning. And the reason they ended up in St. Louis was because uh, at the time that my dad was in his early teens, uh, he was withering away. He was small and he was sickly. And my grandmother recognized it was because my, my grandfather was working him to death. And so she insisted that they move to the city in hopes to get away from that kind of labor and to give my dad opportunities to get away from my my uh, grandfather. I share that story to say that one of the things that my dad did do right, even though he was not a educated man in the world standards, was he knew how to break the cycle of violence and abuse. Because I never, I never experienced any kind of abuse from that man. Never experienced him hitting me in anger or even words, even harsh words that would cut to the bone. Uh, one of the things I say is there's four of us Turner boys, and I can tell you that I, I can assure you that what you're seeing before you today is the very best of the four Turner boys, right? I'm the best one that we produced. Uh, but all four of us, all four of us, no matter 
and how broken my brothers might be, we all experienced and enjoyed a father who was not abusive. And because of that, we became men, to my knowledge, we became men who were not abusive to spouses or to children. And so my dad broke the cycle. Incredible, incredible. And so I share that to you uh, as we think about why do we discipline the way we do. It cannot be out of brokenness. It cannot be out of our emotions. It cannot be out of what we are feeling to other people. But instead, God's word provides us a clue, something insightful for us to look at to say, there's our target. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we should be going for. And I invite you to open up to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15. We're going to read two verses today that give us hints, give us an insight into what we need to be looking for in how we are to to discipline the next generation. And I say that that way because maybe, like I said, maybe some of us, our kids are gone. Maybe some of us, we're not going to have children. But we all have the ability, and we we all will have an ability to speak into the next generation of people coming up behind us. How do we discipline them? What should be our goal uh, for them? Let's read Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15. A rod and a reprimand impart what? Wisdom. A rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left to left undisciplined disgraces its mother. And verse 17 goes on. Solomon says, Discipline your children, and they will give you what? Huh? Say it. Peace. Peace. Discipline your children, and they will give you peace. They will bring you the delights you desire. So here's the thing. We see discipline. It's an outward focus. There's something we do as we discipline. We impart something upon our children. And and also as we discipline, when we do it correctly, we also gain something from it. It's a fruit that we get to enjoy as well. What are the two things I believe that discipline, what we're hoping to receive, what we should be aiming for when we are disciplining our children, we're disciplining the next generation. Uh, the, The two things are this, to make that individual wise, right? to give wisdom to our children. We should be disciplining not to keep them in line, not to keep them so they're not annoying us, not to keep them so that, so that other people can look at them and go, oh, what cute children. The goal for disciplining children should be that one day that child is going to grow up and that child will be a wise man or a wise woman and not fools. Because let's face it, folks, you open up the news, you turn on the TV, you look at whatever site you look at online to get your news, there are a lot of fools operating today. There are a lot of fools that are living out foolish thoughts, foolish philosophies, foolish behaviors that just lead in our world today and are considered the norm. And so for us, when we we operate with discipline and we give discipline to our next generation, we're hoping the next generation will gain wisdom from that discipline. And a second thing that is a fruit of the discipline, it benefits us as well, and that is what we have, peaceful homes, right? You know, homes that are marked with chaos and pain and suffering and tragedy and trauma, Oftentimes, at the very center of that trauma, there is a child there that ha- does not have discipline, that does, has never embraced discipline in their lives. 
and we see it. But when we experience children with discipline, then we experience peace in our home. So how do we make this happen? I tell you up front, I don't have a silver bullet to offer you. I say as your pastor and your friend, if I were to say, well, here's the 10 rules that we have for, for Dax. Well, first of all, it'd be a lie because we don't have a 10 rule list, right? Uh, it would be, it would, I would be misleading you and I would be uh, mocking you. If I tried to say that I had it figured out or I had the secret formula for you, I am no expert by any means. This is not Moses coming down from the mount saying, here's the 10 things that God is telling me to impart to you. But rather, I'd say this, that to me, the discussion and the understanding of discipline should be a, a continual discussion with your family, with the parents in that child's life in order to figure out how to help this kid grow wise and how to create peace in the home. And in the midst of this, as you're having this rolling, continuing discussion, I would say there are some things that you need to keep in mind. For, for us to be able to give discipline, you must have discipline. It's very difficult for you, a chaotic person, right? A person, a person that is not subject to rules yourself to then say, okay, I'm going to give you some rules. And so in order for our kids to experience discipline in their lives, we must be people of discipline. We must be subject to authority. We must have discipline in our lives. And I would also say this, some things for you to avoid. Here are some things to avoid. The first one, I titled it the lifeguard parent. As you are trying to figure out what discipline looks like in your home, avoid becoming a lifeguard parent. What am I talking about with, as a lifeguard parent? I'm talking about when your job, when you look at discipline, you think that the purpose of discipline is for you to be able to rescue your kid from the consequences of their actions. If you're out there trying to rescue them and pull them from the fire, friend, you're not helping. You're not helping one bit. Uh, I have an uncle on my mom's side, and he was a county judge in southeast Missouri. And one of the things back in the, I don't know about today, but I can say in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, southeast Missouri was a corrupt area, an area just far enough from St. Louis and far enough from federal authorities to be able to do law as they saw fit. And one of the things, I had, I had two cousins that were older than me by about 10 years. And when those cousins started getting DUIs from the local sheriff in that county, that local sheriff would take that citation to my uncle the judge. And you know what my uncle the judge did? He made that citation go away without his kids ever having to go to court. And he would take care of those fines. He would take care of those penalties. Sometimes he just tore up the charges and they went away. The whole time my uncle was doing that, he thought he was being the greatest dad in the history of fatherhood. He thought he was taking care of the needs of his sons. What he was doing was he was, trying, he was being a lifeguard parent. He was taking the consequences away from his kids' terrible actions. Well, you, you know what happened, and, and you, you don't have to be a genius to know the, how this story goes. The reality was it went from being alcohol to possession, possession of of illicit and illegal substances. It went from being possession of, of, you know, marijuana. First it was marijuana, then it turned into cocaine and even heroin. It went from being possession to then distribution, where he, they became drug dealers in their community, in their area. Uh, and the whole time, every time 
they would get arrested, those charges would just go away. Just go away. The whole time, my uncle just thought he was being the greatest dad in the world, taking care of his kids and taking away those charges. Well, long story short, I, we could sit here for, for an hour and I could tell you one story after another story after another story of just horror stories that they would commit, try, th terrible things that they'd find themselves in. And ultimately, here's what happened to them. The oldest, my oldest uh, cousin is in a box in a graveyard uh, in southeast Missouri, died at the age of 34 from, from an overdose. My next, the, the younger uh, cousin, who is about eight years older than me, I don't know where he is. I don't know where he's at. All I know is when my uncle was laying on his dying bed in his retirement home out there in southeast Missouri, uh, my dad was telling me how Mark, my cousin, was robbing, taking everything out of that home. Fixtures, light fixtures, doorknobs, taking plumbing out, taking the wiring, stripping the wiring from the walls in order to get money for drugs and alcohol. And the last I heard, he, I don't know what state he is, I don't know where he's at, he was homeless. He was just wandering around as a vagabond looking for his next fix, looking for the next alcohol he could, could consume, the next drug he could shoot into his veins. Lifeguard parenting. I would posit, now this is an imponderable, I know that, but I wonder, I wonder the first time that they were caught with an open container in their car and they had to spend a night in jail and deal with the indignity of their community talking about them, of what was happening to them and you know, what kind of kid would do something like that. I wonder if, those, if, that, if my cousins had to experience that the first time at the age of 15, 16 years old. I wonder if life would have been different after that. I don't know, and I'm, I, can't, I can't say, but I, I think it would have. I think it would have. I think that as lifeguard parents, sometimes we forget about verses like Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God sharing to us, saying, saying do, you, do not be deceived. Do not lie to yourself. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Parents, so often when our kids are reaping destruction, what do we do? We love our kids, and so we don't want them to experience the destruction. And so we try to, we try to take the destruction on ourselves. We try to, to deal with it ourselves so that our kids will never feel it. Because we say to ourselves, well, we don't want our kids to go through something terrible. And, and you know that, I understand that feeling, but let me tell you, if you begin the process at the very beginning of those scenarios where they begin to experience a taste of, of destruction, a taste of what it would be like if they continue to go down that life, I got to wonder if life would be different for them, right? And so, so we, as parents, we can't parent in such a way that we become lifeguard parents, pulling them out every time that they're about to experience the consequence of their, their foolish action, their, their, their poor decision. A second area, a second area is uh, etch, what I call etch-a-sketch parents. Remember that toy, that etch-a-sketch toy? You, you know, it's, today it sounds pretty boring, but when I was a kid, I remember the technology was impressive, Right? I could make a line if I, if I just you twist the dial, it could make a straight line. And I twist the dial, I could make a, a, a horizontal line or a vertical line, you know. If I twist both dials at the same time, it's kind of like, like this wavering line, you know. And, and I could just make designs all day long with that. 
right? And create incredible things. Now, for me, all I could ever do is create just like a box. That was pretty much all I was making, right? And then what, what's the beautiful thing about an Etch-A-Sketch? When you get tired of that design or it gets, you know, you get bored with it, you flip it upside down, you shake it, you put it back up, and it's vanishing, right? Well, many of us are Etch-A-Sketch parents where we, we put down decrees from on high and say, this is how it's going to be. But then something changes. Maybe our mood changes, our humor changes, circumstances change. Maybe we just have a, a good meal or we have a good night's sleep and we wake, wake up the next day and all the rules change again, right? There's varying levels of that. And I confess to you today, of these areas, probably that is that's the weakness of my part. I could be an Etch-A-Sketch parent, right? I could say, Dax, this is the way we're going to do it. This is how we're going to live life. And then something happens. I'm entertained by something he says or does, and I just forget the rule, right? And I just let it go. I, I'm, I can be an Etch-A-Sketch parent here. I can, what am I talking about? I can say that I'm, I'm inconsistent at times with my values and my rules and how I how I put Dax in those and, and tell him this is how, how I say this is how you're going to live within these rules and within this value system. Etch-a-sketch parenting. Uh, it's an area we need to be careful of. A, a third area that we can fall into is the idea of what I call a split decision parent. Now, split decision parenting, this happens most prevalently like in, in the families of, in the, in the case of a divorce family when when mom and dad are in different homes, but they still have to figure out how to parent this child. And so oftentimes mom and dad have, have warring and, and, and oftentimes even destructive views opposing one another of how to parent that child. And so, so there's always, they're always in a place where they're, in, they're, 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 they're not unified. They're seldom unified with, with what the rules are to be and what are, the, what are the guidelines for us to parent our children with. Split decision parenting also happens in the home as well, where these two parents just are not on the same page. And what I'd say to you is, is talk together and talk often and figure out what these rules and what these expectations need to be, what they need to be. Now, one of the things I've done is just to allow for some feedback. I would love for your feedback. And I, back at, at 9 o'clock this morning, somewhere around that time, I pushed out a notification on our Northbridge app. If you don't have that app, I'd invite you to get it. It's a great tool for us to communicate. It's a great way to stay up to date on announcements and on current activities of our church. If you have a smartphone, this app is free. You can just download it off of your app store and you get that in. Well, I, I gave a quiz. I put a quiz out there that I expected when, if someone saw it, they don't know what to do with it. It should be on your app now. And I just simply asked the question, of these three things, which one do you find yourself that struggling with the most? Uh, you, you can go ahead and fill that. I think you have the ability to see the percentages of what other people, what other people in our community, other people in our church feel. Um, the neat thing about this is it's totally anonymous, so there won't be names attached to it, okay? But we just see percentages of who struggles with what. Which one, which one do you struggle with? Are you, do you find yourself being a lifeguard parent? Do you find yourself leaning into being an Etch-A-Sketch parent or a split decision kind of parent? Uh, which one do you deal with? Um, that why I was asking that question is just to ask you to kind of think through that for yourself and also as a prayer tool for me, because as I see those this week, I'm going to be praying for those areas of, as far as how our church parents, how our church deals with the future generation. Here's the reality, friends. Our kids, our kids are worth all of our love. Absolutely. They're worth all of our time. No doubt about it. They're worth 
incredible uh, displays of or investments, outlays of finances, right? The money that we spend on Dax for his education, for to pay for people to, to care for him when we're at work, to, to care for him and take care of him, to educate him. The amount of money we spend on family vacations to make memories together. Every penny, 100% worth it. 100% worth that. We also must understand that our kids are worth our very best discipline. Our very best discipline. And that this is an area that we got to just lean into. And if you sit back and say, you know, that's just uh, discipline. It's just not who I am. And that's just not what I'm about. Uh, it doesn't matter. We have, we have to be people of discipline for the next generation. You have to be one of these kinds of people. And so that helps us to remember that no matter who we are, to, to be able to give good discipline to the next generation, we have to be people of discipline. So how are you doing? Do you find that your life is a life of discipline, a life that's ruled by saying, hey, I, I want to I operate in this form and fashion. I have these goals in my life I'm achieving. Or, or do you just, do, is your life just chaotic and out of, out of control, no discipline in it whatsoever? Because maybe this is an area that you need to repent of before you even think about future generations, before you even think about children, before you even think about how do you, how do you submit discipline to your, to your own kids, you just look at yourself and go, am I a person that's submitted to the discipline of God where his discipline is in my life? Those would be questions for you to just to wrestle with and just to maybe do some business with. I just invite you and just remind you the way we started out with this and just I began this talk by reminding you of Zig Ziglar's statement, a child who has not been disciplined with the love by his little world will be disciplined without love by the great big world. That is a true statement that is lived out over and over and over again. And we see it in the newspapers and we see it in the news with much of what's going on in the world today. So let's make a difference in our lives. Let's make a difference in our families. Let's make a difference in our community and be different kind of people that maybe the world has never seen. A people that really takes seriously discipline. And for us, we discipline to make wise kids and make homes that are filled with peace. Those are good things to live out. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We thank you, God. We thank you, Lord, that you speak into our lives. We thank you, God, that you interact with us and you, and you work in us. And one of the things you work in us is you work your discipline in us. And so, Lord, we bear our lives to you right now, bear our hearts, we bear our minds, and just say, look at us, know us, God, and speak to us. Are we people who live out your discipline in our lives? And Lord, are we people who, who seek to discipline the next generation so that they would be wise people in life and they would live wisely and that they would be people that bring peace to their homes and not disaster, not chaos, not anxiety, not stress, oh God. We pray that you would form us and, and make us the kind of people that you desire when it comes to our families, when it comes to our kids. These things we ask in your son's powerful name. Amen. Thank you for 
listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.